Hey everyone, and welcome to Between the Creations. My name is Lorian Hook, and each week on the podcast, I and my guest discuss various aspects of theology, Christianity, and the Bible. I'm so glad you decided to join us. Let's get started. It is so good to be back with you for another episode of the podcast. I know that it's been a while since we have uh, had a new episode released, so it's really exciting to finally be back and have an offering for you this week. Uh, Let me kind of give you guys a little update on how we are going to move forward with the podcast. So as you know, this is primarily just a single person operation, uh, aside from just the actual sound and editing aspect of it. But I'm the one who is booking interviews and trying to find people and reaching out and trying to make calendars work and everything like that. So what we have decided to do is to cut back to an episode every other week, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, maybe with some caveats to that, depending on the month and stuff like that. But uh, what we've decided to do is an episode every other week. And it's mostly, not always, but mostly going to look like this. It's going to be the first episode that we release in a given month will be um, an episode with me kind of setting up the topic for that month and setting up the interview and conversation that we are going to have with the with the guest for that for that month. So, for example, this week or this month, rather, uh, today, I'm going to kind of introduce this idea of various atonement theories, specifically focusing on um, nonviolent atonement theories. And that will make more sense to you by the end of the podcast, I promise. Uh, and then in two weeks time, I will release a fantastic episode with a gentleman who has written a lot about this, has thought a lot about this, and spoken a lot about these topics. And so we're going to kind of be able to go a little bit deeper. We're going to be able to, uh, through this introductory episode to the concept, and then the follow-up episode with kind of an expert in the field, we're going to be able to go deeper and hopefully kind of give you all some more information, um, some more resources, just a deeper conversation in general. Uh, about whatever topic we are discussing that month. And like I said, sometimes we might release a few more episodes if a topic is particularly broad or if we had a more lengthy conversation with the guest. Uh, So don't hold me exactly to this, but this is kind of the plan moving forward so that I can kind of manage my schedule a little bit more and not try to turn out an episode each week um, in the midst of another full-time job and a bunch of other things. So Um, But again, like I said, it's good to be back. I'm glad we have a plan moving forward. Uh, I have some fantastic interviews already booked for the coming month, so I'm really, really excited. Uh, We actually have a unique and special Halloween episode for uh, October here in just a little while, so keep your eyes and ears open for that. We'll be talking more about that later. Um, But today, I'm going to kind of tee up and introduce some uh, thoughts and some uh, just generalizations on uh, atonement theories and why they are important. And in doing so, I'm going to offer some terminology and some background for the conversation that we will release with our guest in two weeks' time. So if you have never thought about atonement theories, if you didn't even know there were more than one theory of what happens at, during the atonement, that's totally fine. Not to fear. Do not worry. Uh, We are going to help you get there. Now, if you are someone who has done a lot of thinking about this, then great. Hang around for this episode and definitely check out the next one where we're talking about this uh, because it's going to be it's going to be really good. And we're going to go pretty deep into some of this 
some of this idea, some of these ideas. So let me kind of offer this as a little bit of a backdrop for, for our conversation. Um, like I said, there are multiple theories of what happens exactly, exactly, um, in the atonement. So let's kind of define some terms here. What do we mean when we say the word atonement? Well, a lot of people, a lot of scholars, Christians are going to say something along the lines of the atonement has to deal with what happened exactly between God and humanity through Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Now, most people really, really want to focus in and kind of zero in on the the death part, specifically what happened between God and humanity um, through the cross. Uh, And I want to kind of expand the definition of atonement, and I'll explain why as we go, to also including Jesus's life, resurrection, and ultimately his ascension, as well as his death. Uh, the atonement is not just something that we can kind of zero in to Friday, to Good Friday at noon um, when Jesus actually died. It's actually, I think we can make an argument that it encompasses Jesus in Jesus's entire life, his entire ministry, his entire way of um, revealing the kingdom to us. And so anyways, that's kind of what I mean when we talk about the atonement. But when I go through some of these um, older or, or more prevalent viewpoints here in just a second, when we talk about atonement in this period of time, it's just specifically talking about Jesus's uh, life and death. So let me kind of explain some pretty prevalent atonement theories, um, one of which you might even believe in without realizing that it had a name. Um, So that's kind of cool. Maybe we'll learn some things together here. Um, One kind of big broad stroke that people paint with when we talk about atonement theories is what are called um, penal atonement theories. So think like penal system. So that's kind of where, where that terminology is coming from. So this is, there's one where Jesus acts as our penal substitute. So Christ basically by his own um, sacrificial choice was punished or penalized or penalized. That's kind of where that word comes from in the place of, of sinners. So there's this substitution aspect as well, where Christ again is our penal substitute. Um, and thus in his substitution for us in his dying, he satisfies the demands of justice so that God can justly forgive sin. Okay. So let me offer that kind of definition one more time real quick. So we have it in our brains, penal substitution, this viewpoint on the atonement is Christ, by his own sacrificial choice, being punished or penalized in our place as a substitution, thus satisfying the demands of justice so God can justly forgive sin. Okay, so that's penal substitution. A lot of people, especially in the West, especially in Protestantism, evangelicalism, this is really um, kind of the prevalent or has been the prevalent viewpoint on the atonement, this penal substitution model. Let's talk about some ones that are a little older, kind of going back to um, like early church fathers, uh, earlier in church history. Uh, there's one that's called the moral satisfaction theory of the atonement. And this is a theory um, that really kind of came out of some more um, Catholic-leaning theology several hundreds of years ago. And this moral satisfaction viewpoint says that that Jesus redeems humanity through making satisfaction for humankind's disobedience through his perfect obedience. Okay, so there's definitely aspects of that that a lot of Christians would would claim and would believe in and would say, yeah, Jesus, through Jesus's obedience, through Jesus's moral perfection, um, we are thereby 
um, offered uh, participation in this this type of life. Um, so that's the moral satisfaction theory. Now, granted, keep in mind, I'm giving like bare bones, just kind of really, really simplified definitions of these just to kind of get us in the general ballpark of these thoughts. Um, so we've talked about the penal substitution model. We just talked about the moral satisfaction theory. Let's talk about the, the ransom theory. Um, this position originated uh, in the early church, per- particularly and primarily in the works of a guy named Origen. Um, and this particular theory, the ransom theory, teaches us that uh, the death of Jesus was a ransom, uh, typically in this understanding that has been paid to Satan or the devil, in satisfaction for the bondage and debt um, of human souls as a result of our inherited sin. Um, so basically that boiled down ransom theory is Jesus, Jesus's death was a ransom paid to Satan to satisfy, um, the fact that Satan, uh, was, was holding all of us in captivity basically. And so now we're free. Now, I hope that in listening to those, those three, the penal substitution, the moral satisfaction and the ransom theory, I hope that maybe you've been able to be like, okay, there's there's aspects of each of those that definitely make sense that I can make a an argument from the scriptures in favor of. Um, but here's the problem: I personally, and and a lot of scholars, people write books about this and argue about it all the time. I think that all three of these, and on their own, are really really lacking in in some ways. Um, specifically the, the penal substitution one, because we just have a really, really skewed idea of what that means. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in this episode and definitely talk about that with our guest in, in two weeks. But let's talk about another fourth option um, that I think offers us a much better um, holistic picture. Again, remembering that Jesus, is, that the atonement is should probably be understood more in a, in a better way, rather, as Jesus's whole entire ministry, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, all of these things. Um, so this other option is is known as the Christus Victor, um, and which is, you know, Christ, Christ the Victor. It's, it's a fancy, you know, way of saying that. And this just is a, again, I'm really going to generalize here and, and sum it up for us. But Christus Victor basically says that the atonement is Jesus's ultimate and final defeat of all of the systems of sin and evil and death in the world. And now he reigns victorious over those things. Uh, and so we can now um, participate in this, in this new life. So again, I'm hoping that you're picking up on some some versions of of these things. You're like, yeah, that's kind of what I believe, and that seems a little bit kind of like what I grew up thinking. Um, so here's what I want us to kind of realize and focus on. Let's go back to this this penal substitution model because if we're honest, I think most of us, especially if you grew up in um, Western evangelical, Western Protestant um, churches, most of us probably grew up with the penal substitution model, um, kind of being what was presented to us, what we what we believed. And again, that's the one where Christ is punished or penalized in in our place, and therefore, in by by this happening, He satisfies God's righteous demands for justice, thereby allowing God to forgive our sins. Okay, and. Uh, as I've read and as I've kind of explored and learned and and and, gr- and grown, um, this position just has seemed less and less uh, 
okay for me <laughs> in, in a lot of ways. And so let's, I want to talk about that a little bit with you guys for the re- remainder of this episode and kind of make a case um, for what is called, uh, or what, what scholars and, and different Christian authors um, call the nonviolent atonement. And, and what do we mean by that? Why is it important? Why is it something that we should consider? Um, there is actually a book called The Nonviolent Atonement by a gentleman named J. Denny Weaver that I highly, highly recommend. Um, and I'm actually going to read a few quotes from this book that kind of set up the conversation, give us some uh, information, but also maybe help us help us think through what he is trying to say here. So, so Weaver says this, he says, from a position of apparent weakness, the reign of God as present in Jesus confronted and submitted to power. His nonviolent death, we're going to talk about what he means by that in a second, but his nonviolent death was not a departure from the activist pattern of confronting the social order and making the reign of God visible. In the face of active or direct evil or violence, the refusal to respond in kind is a powerful chosen act, not a mere passive submission. Refusing to return evil for evil unmasks the violence of the evil acts and demonstrates that the evil which killed Jesus originated with humankind and not with God. That last sentence is really, really key here because what a lot of people think when we talk about the atonement, going back to that kind of penal substitution model, is that God was really, really mad or that God was unable to move close to humanity or to love humanity completely or to be completely present with humanity um, because of sin. Therefore, because God is so angry and so disappointed and so upset by our sin that God has to kill something uh, for, for this to be made right, that something has to die in order for this to be okay, in order for us to be near God or close to God. And you might be sitting there thinking, Lorian, that makes sense, because if you read the Old Testament, God demanded sacrifices. That's a whole different conversation that we can have. Um, let me just say this as a way of, of prompting that conversation. If you carefully read the Old Testament, specifically places um, like uh, Leviticus 17, I think starting in verse like 9 or 10, um, God gives some pretty strict and, and insightful instructions into the covenantal relationship with God's people. So God's through Moses, God is setting up this, this covenant and kind of ratifying it and making it, um, you know, understandable for these people. And the sacrificial system is God's built in uh, transgression fixing model for how his people can remain in covenant with him. God does not say, I'm so angry with you when you sin that you have to kill something. No, no, no. God says, um, the blood of these animals purifies the altars. That's that's what's happening. The blood of these animals purifies the altars. And so when you bring your your sin, when you bring your your impurities to these altars, um, and you and you know the priest helps you you know go through these ritualistic patterns, what you're actually purifying is is the altar itself. And again, some of you are having your minds blown, and it's it's such a cool conversation to have. But if you read places like Leviticus chapter 4, Leviticus chapter 17, Leviticus 26, you begin to see that the sacrificial system is not necessary. It should not be understood as God is angry and demands blood for people's sins. That's not the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, nor is it what, what Jesus accomplishes either. 
the what happens in the Old Testament is God saying, hey, um, my altars in my tabernacle and temple are the place where I will dwell among you. And so they have to remain pure. They have to remain, um, you know, unblemished. And the way to do that is to purify them with blood. God's not angry and demanding people kill things. No, God's saying blood purifies. And so you're going to go through this ritual, the blood only being a minor part of the ritual, actually, if you read the entirety of the instructions. And that's how my altars are going to remain pure. And therefore, I will remain in your midst. Now, here's what happens, especially, again, if you if you read um, places like Leviticus 26, um, Jeremiah 11 also talks about this, where um, God in Leviticus 26 says that um, there are also covenantal curses that will happen to you if you do not obey the covenant. One of these covenantal curses is that the sacrifices on the altars will become ineffective and God's presence will leave God's people. And we see this happen throughout the Old Testament where the people turn aside to idols, they turn aside to other to other gods, and they are not purifying the altars. They're not, they're not remaining in covenant. And God's presence leaves the tabernacle or the temple. We see this happen multiple times, and this, this is not a good thing. Um, so this is the narrative that we find ourselves in when we talk about atonement. We're not talking about an angry deity demanding blood and God being the one who ultimately kills his own son. This, that's not the narrative. And regardless of if you would use those words or not, like I said, I think a lot of us grew up with a version of that narrative. We grew up with a version of an angry deity who demanded a perfect life and demanded that that perfect life die so that we can somehow be lovable again. And if you read places like John 3.16, <laughs> which we all love to quote, um, John 3.16 says, as as most of you know, I'm sure, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? But if I were to really like drill down into a lot of our atonement theories, most of us would actually be saying something along the lines of God was so angry at the world that Jesus had to be killed. And, and that's not the narrative. That's, that's not the story that we're trying to tell. That's not the story that the Bible tells. Um, for example, a lot of people are, mis, are, are misinformed or just misunderstand and think that Jesus's death, think that Jesus came um, and, and that his death actually took place during Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement when the priests would go in and put blood on the, in, on the Ark of the Covenant and sprinkle that room and take care of all the stuff in there. No, Jesus's death, uh, the, the whole Passover thing took place during Passover, which is why he has that meal with his disciples. Now, why do I say that? Because if you think with me about the story of Passover, what is the story of Passover about? It is about God rescuing his people. It is about God making a way for God's people to be free. Does it involve blood? Yes, it involves the blood on the doorposts and stuff like that, but it's not, God is not angry. God is not demanding that that blood be spilled so he can be appeased. No, um, it's a rescue mission. It's, it's, it's pure and simple. It's a rescue mission. And so that's the context into which we can kind of read Jesus's death. But again, remembering that atonement is also his life, his resurrection. It's the whole package deal. Um, let me read another quote here from from uh, Weaver's book. It's a long one, but but hold on there with me. He's talking about the Christus Victor viewpoint of the atonement that we talked about here just a little bit earlier. It says this. It says, Christus Victor is not an atonement narrative if one requires a change in the relationship between God and sinful humankind based on the assumption of retributive justice 
that making right or restoring justice happens when evil deeds are balanced by punishment. The death of Jesus in Christus Victor is not aimed at God, and it does not affect God in any of these ways. So, so Weaver is making the argument that Jesus's death does not does not magically change God's opinion and view of us. God has always loved His creation. God has always loved humanity. Um, God has always been present with God's people. Um, people people often say, you know, well, God can't look at sin or God can't be around sinners. And my response to that always is, okay, so explain Jesus. Because if you believe that Jesus is God, which is Orthodox Christianity, I, I hope if you're a Christian that you believe Jesus is God, how do you explain what Jesus did with sinners, right? He was present with us. He got right up in our mess in our business. He didn't, not once did Jesus turn away and, and look the other direction from a sinner and go, oh, I just, I can't look on you. I can't be near you. I can't be near sin. So that whole narrative of God being angry or just violent, violence-filled or retributive, or just unable to actually be around sinful humanity is is actually a false narrative that for some reason we have really, really bought into. And it's very interesting when you start unpacking that and people begin realizing, oh, like I don't maybe God's not angry. Like maybe maybe God's maybe maybe God's disposition towards humanity is not is not first and foremost anger. And also maybe God didn't kill Jesus. If you read the book of Acts, when Peter gets up to give his great sermon, after after a Pentecost, he looks at all these people. He looks at the Jews in particular, and he looks at them. And he goes, "Um, you killed Jesus. Like your systems of violence and anger and retribution and all of that, y- you killed Jesus, <laughs> not God. God did not kill Jesus. God did not demand some blood sacrifice um, to be appeased for these things." Um, let's let me read another quote here um, from from this book because again, I think I think Weaver says it better than than most people. Um, Let me find, I just lost my place here. Here he goes. He says this, in discussions of dogma, the classic question of atone, the classic questions of atonement concern the nature of sin and how Jesus's death saves humankind from that sin. Christus Victor, this other position accounts for these questions. It portrays sin as bondage to the forces of evil. Again, think, um, think Passover bondage. We're being freed from something from those forces of evil whose earthly representatives include the structures of imperial Rome, which had ultimate authority for Jesus' death. The structures of holiness code to which Jesus posed reforming alternatives and the mob and the disciples in, in their several roles are all participants, or excuse me, all participants in society down to and including ourselves by virtue of what human society is, is we participate in and are in bondage to the powers represented by these earthly structures that killed Jesus. Salvation is to begin to be free from those evil forces and to be transformed by the reign of God and to take on a life shaped, marked, and marked by the story of Jesus, whose mission was to make visible the reign of God in our history. So again, what Weaver is saying is salvation, what Jesus accomplishes, is not appeasing an angry deity on our behalf. Rome killed Jesus. The Jewish leaders killed Jesus. Paul, uh, Paul, Peter says this in, in Acts. What Jesus is accomplishing on the cross is proposing an alternative to the evil and the sin and the violence in the world through his own nonviolent approach to it. Jesus doesn't fight back. Jesus doesn't try to rally his disciples into some sort of zealous mob to, to vindicate him and to save his life. No, he willingly goes to his death not because God is angry and demands blood, but because the only way, 
The only way to subvert a violent, hate-filled, evil-filled world and rescue people out of it is to go into the very depths of that system, i.e. death itself, and to destroy it, which is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus goes into the heart of death itself and breaks it from the inside out, freeing us. Remember, Passover is the context in which this happens. Passover, where God's people are freed from evil, oppressive systems, i.e. Egypt, this is the narrative that Jesus chooses to, un- to unveil God's great mission and God's great plan, which is, the subversi- the, which is so subversive that we miss it because we're so convinced and so bent on God being angry and upset with our sin. And so therefore God has to kill something or something has to be killed on God's behalf. That's not the narrative. This is not an, this is not the day of atonement, right? This is, this is Passover. This is what's happening throughout this story kind of continuing that that thought from, um, from what Weaver was saying. He says this, in carrying out that mission, Jesus was killed by the earthly structures that are in bondage to the power of evil. His death was not a payment owed to God's honor, nor was it a divine punishment that he suffered as a substitute for sinners. He goes on and says, far from being an event organized for a divine requirement, his death reveals the nature of the forces of evil that opposed the rule of God. It poses a contrast between the attempt to coerce violence under the rule of evil and the nonviolence of the rule of God as revealed and made visible by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So Weaver's argument here is that we don't have to read the the atonement. We don't have to read the story specifically of of Jesus' death, but also of Jesus' life and death. We don't have to read that story through the lens of God being angry and needing to punish someone so that we can somehow be free. We don't have to approach it through that lens. God is not the, the, the um, agent of violence in this story. It is a nonviolent story on God's part. It is inc- an incredibly, however, violent story on the part of humans. Because remember, we are bound and chained up in systems of evil, systems of violence, systems of oppression, systems that are bent on killing people. Um, and that's what happens. Jesus is killed by the systems um, that are that are bent and broken and set entirely against the kingdom of God. And so Jesus steps into those systems and goes right into the heart of them, right into death itself, and destroys it from the inside out, thereby freeing us, again, Passover, being freed from violent from systems of oppression, he frees us to then become members of the kingdom of God, to see God more clearly, to understand the narrative properly, and to live changed lives through God's mercy. So what's God doing through the atonement if we read it through nonviolent lenses? God is showing us how to truly be human. God is showing us what it means to um, denounce and to walk away from and to reject the evil systems of this world. This is what Paul tells us in, in the New Testament, right? Paul says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and principalities and all that stuff that in the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, those are the things that we have to fight against. Those are the things that we should be um, denouncing and, and throwing off left and right. I um, mean, Jesus goes right into those evil places, right into that very, those, those spiritual forces of evil, and he breaks them from the inside out, and he's victorious over it. And therefore, we are invited into that victory through Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Now, 
I realized that maybe some of you are angry with me right now. (laughs) Maybe some of you are scratching your head and going, I've never thought of it that way. Maybe some of you are going, finally, someone else is, is talking about this because I've been wondering these things. I don't know where you fall on this, but I really just want to offer a nonviolent on God's part view of the atonement because I think it is worth our consideration. I think it is worth our time um, to kind of stretch our brains a little bit and to and to consider some alternatives um, to maybe what we've been told our whole lives. And these alternatives, i.e. the Christus Victor um, model and, and approach the atonement, seem to be more in line with the actual overall biblical narrative. Again, if you read Exodus, if you read Leviticus, if you're reading kind of these, these stories of, that are setting up the narrative into which Jesus steps into, it seems that this is actually perhaps a better option. It is, it is a better option for us to consider this um, as, as a position that we can have about, about the atonement. Um, there's, a, there's another author, his name's Brian Zahn, and he says that um, the crucifixion is not what God inflicts upon Jesus in order to forgive. The crucifixion is what God endures in Christ as he forgives, as he deals with um, the brokenness and the evil in this world. Um, and I've just, I think that that's a fantastic way to think about this. Um, I think that's just a beautiful, beautiful way to process what uh, is is actually happening throughout the narrative of the story. So this is what happens. We, we get into these really kind of tricky places when we just read the singular aspects of the New Testament or singular aspects of Jesus's life without the entire context of the Old Testament. This is why it's really important when Paul is talking and writing, he says that, hey, um, remember that I preached this these things to you as a first importance. He goes that Christ came and died. And then he says this, Paul says, in accordance with the scriptures. Paul is not talking about the New Testament there. The New Testament did not exist. Paul is talking about the Old Testament, primarily the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books. So if Paul is able to look all the way back to those passages and say, Christ died in accordance with the scriptures, with with what's written here, then we need to begin to get a better idea of what actually is happening in in the sacrificial system. What actually is happening at Passover? What actually is God doing in this covenantal relationship where he's trying to use a people to begin to change the world? And then God comes down and decides to do it himself because people are, are just continually dropping the ball. So I hope that that gives you some things to think about. Again, the book that I, I would recommend is called The Nonviolent Atonement by J. Denny Weaver. Um, there's also another two, two part, two volume set um, called The Crucifixion of the Warrior God by Gregory Boyd that I, that I definitely recommend. That's a little bit heftier. Um, so if you're really into this, maybe look into, into those books. But this conversation also hopefully will, has set up the conversation that I am doing, the interview that I'm doing in t- that will come out in two weeks um, with a brilliant, brilliant pastor and author um, who writes and speaks about the, uh, a nonviolent view of the atonement so well. And I'm really looking forward to kind of putting his work in front of you and letting him talk to you and give you some perspective. So I hope that this was interesting. I hope that maybe it made you scratch your head a little bit and that you enjoyed it. Uh, but hang in there and we'll, we're going we're gonna to continue to talk about it. We'll be back in two weeks um, with a great conversation to further unpack this really, really great topic. So until then, take care and we'll be back soon.
Thanks for joining me this week. It's a huge help when you like, rate, and subscribe to Between the Creations wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram or Facebook for news about upcoming episodes. You can find out more about the podcast, submit topics you'd like me to cover on an episode, or even ask me to speak at your event at laurienhook.com.